Yeah, thank you, Shiloh, for that uh, story. Do you have any kind of stories like that in your life? That's a pretty extreme one. But uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. Good to see you as we're in our Campfire Story Series. Uh, hopefully, you were here last week or you got to listen. Our founding pastor, John Smith, talked about uh, what it means to really live into the call of God on our lives. It was fantastic. Uh, so it's downhill this week. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, it's all good. And uh, we have uh, Sandy with us today. Give Sandy a great big hand. I know we're never supposed to do this, but Sandy and Mark are here today. I think like maybe one of the first times, but um, Sandy and Mark are retired United Methodist Church pastors. And Sandy, I found out, pastored a deaf church in Baltimore. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. Like, you could go home now and be blessed, if I can use a church word, like, for having come in. So, like, Sandy has done more than I could ever dream of doing in my entire life. So, it's exciting, and we're grateful they're here. And uh, for all those that are kind of stepping in and helping us out with our, uh, really, with our deaf ministry, it's wonderful. So, it's kind of a cool story, right, that Shiloh shared there. Do you have a story like that of anything in your life, your experience, that that you can only explain with the word God, right? Like whatever we mean by that word, I know different people mean different things, but I look at my life, there are moments, there are things that the only word I have for it is God. Now I'm not, and you've heard me say this, like I'm not a, a supernatural theist, right? I don't believe in a God that exists outside of, you know, my, of this existence who every now and then intervenes. That's not the way I think about God. But I know in my life, I've had experiences where I just go, I don't have another word for that besides God. Right? There's just not an explanation that suits. Like I can't put that one under the microscope. I can't go read a book. It just is a little bit bigger than what I can think about. And I actually grew up in a tradition, a faith tradition, that really valued those kinds of experiences. God was a very real and present thing, existence, and was available for us in the tradition that I grew up in. And one statement that I grew up hearing a lot of, because I grew up in a, a, a tr Christian tradition that really valued like gifts of the Spirit and what, what they would call supernatural things, right? And one thing I always heard said in that environment was that we were supposed to seek the giver and not the gift. Did anybody grow up in a tradition that ever said that? Maybe you just, some of you did, right? Like it was seek the giver, not the gift. Well, what's interestingly enough, like Jesus, this guy who like we say was God in flesh, he never said that. He actually said, I mean, this is going to get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway, okay? I mean, if you're here, you're here, I hope at this point, right? Jesus actually didn't say like, oh, seek God first. He never said seek the giver of the gift. You know what he said? He said, seek the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? He said, seek first the kingdom of God the reign of God, the rule of God on earth, right? But what that sentiment really was teaching us as kind of informing us spiritually in that tradition was that we shouldn't be looking for just these moments, these experiences. We should really want to be connected with God. We should really have our heartbeats aligned up with God. And so it, that, that statement kind of was a guardrail. It spoke to the tendency inside of a, of a more charismatic tradition to just become like spiritual junkies, right? Just looking for our next fix, right? The next time that the, the hair, if you have hair on your arms, like would stand up or you'd get the goosebumps, you know? Or the next time you could say, oh, God moved in my life in a powerful way, right? And we just needed another high. We just needed another emotional experience to get us through the week. And we would call those powerful spiritual moments, and we call it in our tradition, mountaintop experiences, 
right? Mountaintop experiences. But here's the danger of mountaintop experiences, right? Those spiritual experiences would often become the ends rather than the means. So we would have these experiences, but it was seeking after that experience, wanting that next high, wanting that next encounter with the divine, as opposed to that being something that would guide us and direct us and empower us into something else. And so when the means, right, when this idea of an encounter with the divine, these mountaintop experiences, when they become the end, what happens is we become spiritual pleasure seekers and not peacemakers, right? We develop a form of spirituality, a way of following Jesus that really is about pleasure. Like, how can I get the pleasure? How can I have the emotion? How can I have the tears? How can I have... And, and the truth be told, like being raised as a leader even in that tradition, the only way you knew that your sermon, that your talk was successful was by how many people would come forward at the end, right, to the altar call and pray. And if there wasn't enough, you'd have to kind of conjure up, and I use the word conjure very, very specifically, conjure up another way to get more people up. Now, I don't have any problems with the altar call, if I can use that language. I was formed under that. Every Sunday night, I would spend probably 15 minutes just right over there at the church that I grew up in, and it had, instead of like steps like this, we had like the whole platform with steps, and I had, every Sunday night was just spent kneeling down over there, just praying and listening. And it formed me and it made me, it gave me an inner authority about the reality of God and the presence of God and people praying with me. And I have wonderful memories of my father praying with me about circumstances in our life or in my life. Those are wonderful things. So I'm not saying that those moments aren't important. I'm saying that there's a problem that exists when that becomes the point. And so today I want to look at a story, a campfire story from scripture that is, happens on a mountain. It's a mountaintop experience, and I want to look at how the gospel writer, the gospel writer of Mark, we'll call them Mark, because that's what it says in our Bible, <laughs> right? We'll call them Mark. I don't really care if it was a guy named Mark or a woman named Marquette. Who knows? We don't really know who wrote it, but we say Mark, the tradition does. And I want to talk about how this is a part of this big story that the writer is shaping for us and telling this gospel of Jesus in a very powerful way, right? So we want to look at the gospel of Mark today. If you're new to Bible study, Mark is one of what we call the four gospels, which is a bit of a misnomer because there's only one gospel and there's four according to's. That's what we have. So we have this gospel that then gets interpreted and told in these different stories. And I think that's beautiful that our tradition says there's, here's four ways of thinking about this gospel. And we're actually called to continue to do that. I think we need gospel according to's for every generation, right? We have to be reimagining and rethinking and reapplying this beautiful message of Jesus as, as we shape and as we evolve in culture, right? So Mark is the fourth one, Matthew, Mark, third one, excuse me third one in the New Testament, and uh, it's our first and earliest gospel, right? So the gospel of Mark was probably written somewhere around 30 to 40 years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection stories, right? So it's told then, it was probably written around the time period where Rome had come in and there was the, a massive Roman Jewish war and the temple is destroyed. And that reshapes the whole game. Christianity and Judaism start to really separate a little bit at that point in time. Uh, prior to the destruction of the temple and even just in the shadow of that event, there really wasn't a thing called Christianity where there was just Judaism and you had a 
portion of Judaism that followed Jesus as the Messiah. They were kind of Messiah, Jesus-y Jews. That was the idea. And then the destruction of the temple happens, and it kind of changes everything. Now, the scholarly consensus is that Mark is written in Rome. Some, some scholars think it's written in Galilee, some think Syria, but it's primarily most scholars think it's written in Rome. So you got to get all this in your head. So this story of Jesus is being told in the shadow of Rome. It's being shaped. The audience seems to be influenced by, obviously, by the Jewish faith, but, but it's an, a mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles who've converted, right? And so it's in the shadow of this war, Mark is crafting a very powerful narrative that addresses why so many people don't get Jesus, right? The gospel of Mark is about this big question of why aren't people getting this? And so there's this thread throughout the gospel of Mark, and and we call it the messianic secret, and it's that nobody seems to get it, and that's what's being shaped. And right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 8, is kind of a turning point in the story where the people who are supposed to get it, they start to get introduced to it, but they still don't get it, right? So Mark chapter 8, there's this really cool story, and it's not the story we're going to look at, but I'm going to tell you this story so we can understand where the other story fits. How exciting is that? Mark chapter 8, there's a healing story. Right, and this healing story is a blind man, and Jesus comes, and this man can't see, and he kind of spits, and he rubs in his eyes, and he says, can you see? And the man says, well, it's kind of like trees walking around. So he can see, but it's unclear what he's seeing. So Jesus is like, oh man, that didn't work the first time. Let me try it again. You know, he does the Mr. Miyagi thing, you know, and rubs the eyes again, and then he sees clearly, okay? Now, right after that story, there's this incident in Paul where, or it, where in Mark where Peter encounters Jesus and Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you think I am? Now, up to this point, nobody's gotten who Jesus is except for a few demons here and there, okay? And so it, it, Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter, who's blind to who Jesus is, says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're a good job. And then he says, the Messiah's got to go and suffer and die and be raised to life. And Peter says, uh-uh, 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 no, 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 no. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Probably not Peter's favorite day, right? So what do we have here, right? We have this healing story, which serves as a metaphor for kind of what's happening. Everybody's starting to see a little bit, but they get it wrong. And then you have Peter, who kind of sees what it is clearly, but it's kind of like Jesus walking around like a tree. He doesn't quite get it fully. And then after that, Jesus says, Listen, here's the deal. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you're going to have to take up your cross every day and follow me. There's a high cost to following me, Jesus says. He says, but here's the deal. Some of you will see the power of the kingdom of God before you die. And it's at that point that Mark tells this really powerful story that is meant to help his readers wrestle with who Jesus really is. And the narrative of Mark shifts the narrative of Mark starts to now drive towards what Mark is really concerned about, and that is the passion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so this whole story now starts to shift, and what Mark is doing is saying, listen, this Jesus is Son of God, is Messiah, but is nothing like you expect. Nothing like the Messiah of David. Nothing that you think. Nothing like the emperor. And so everything is now marching to help people see that this Jesus is something different. But Mark first has to establish that Jesus is essentially something different. So this is where this story picks up. And it's a great campfire story because it's kind of like a ghost story. Y'all like ghost stories? 
Some of you are like, I do not think I'm ever coming back. He just said, <laughs> interestingly enough, some people think that this story actually, when it first appeared in the tradition, was a post-resurrection encounter, and it's been shaped by the gospel writers. Some scholars believe that. It's kind of fascinating. For those of you that know the story, I'm getting ready to tell. For those of you that don't, just hang with me, okay? So this is what it says. It says, after six days from when we're not exactly sure, but after six days, probably in the, in the story from when Jesus says, hey, some of you aren't going to die before you see the kingdom of God in power. After six days from that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, we don't know what mountain it is. I don't think that's important, but it is important for Mark that we're up on a mountain. Why is that? Because mountains were places of divine revelation in ancient Israelite religion. Mountains were a place of security. They were a place where God did powerful things, right? So you have Abraham, one of, the, one of the forefathers of the Israelite faith. Abraham receives the revelation of God that he's gonna give birth to a great nation, the binding of Isaac, what we sometimes call the sacrifice of Isaac, but he was not sacrificed, so it's kind of a terrible name for the story, right? So the binding of Isaac happens on a mountain, the revelation that God's gonna make of Abraham a great nation, Moses received the revelation of God as Yahweh, this, this name for this deity on a mountain. He received his call to free the people from the bondage of, of, of the Egyptians on a mountain, right? Moses got the Ten Commandments, the Torah, on a mountain. Elijah, if you're familiar with Elijah, he received a revelation that God was in the still, small voice, and he was on a mountain when that happened. So Mark's community knows that really important, powerful things happen on mountains, okay? So then it goes on and it says, in that moment, they're up on this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them, not a word we use a whole lot of today, transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them, all right? So you get the picture that Mark is saying. Remember, we're leading up to it. Nobody gets who Jesus is. Peter has said, you're the Messiah, but you're not going to be, you better be the Messiah the way I want you to be the Messiah. And he says, get behind me, Satan. But by the way, if you want to follow me, you'll get to see the kingdom of God in power. And now Mark has this story where now Jesus is on a mountaintop and all of a sudden he's kind of transfigured and his clothes become white. Now, why is this so powerful? Because transformed appearances was evidence of divine revelation in ancient Israelite religion. It was a common way of telling the story. The reader would have understood this immediately. So like in Exodus chapter 34, Moses, he comes down from the mountain, he has the tablets, and his face is so bright that they have to like cover it up. They're like, whoa, it's kind of like me after church. My face is so bright. Nobody talks to me because of it. That's why I tell myself, nobody talks to me because my face is just so bright. So Moses comes down, his face is so bright. And we have other stories where Moses would go and he would spend time with God. He'd have to wear a veil, right? And this would have been well known. Mark is saying to the people, something different is happening here with Jesus. Mark's community knows that a physical transformation means that someone has been in the presence of God or someone is in the presence of God, right? And all of a sudden, the text says, so Jesus is transfigured. And then these two, two guys show up. It says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. They're just chatting. <laughs> I always wonder, like, what are they talking about? Like, we have no idea. It doesn't say, Mark doesn't say, because it's not important for the reason why Mark is telling us this story, but I always wonder, like, what are they chatting about there, you know? 
But they're having a discourse talking, and it's two very prominent figures in ancient Israelite religion that around their death is a mystery. So Elijah, the tradition says, was taken away in a fiery chariot. Gone. Didn't die. Don't really know what happened. Out of here. That's the story. Moses, interestingly enough, in our text, in Exodus, says that he went off into a mountain and kind of died. But nobody knows where his body is. So within the Israelite tradition, all kinds of stories come up that Moses never actually did die. So you have these two people that have kind of a mysterious death. They're very powerful, and they kind of show up there. And a lot of folks say, well, what this means is the law. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, the two major divisions of our Hebrew scriptures. And they're all being transfigured with Jesus. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's all being brought together, this whole scene, right? So they're standing there and they're talking. And Peter, true to form and true to the disciples in the Gospel of Mark who never get it, like if you always feel confused at church or you always feel confused about God, read the Gospel of Mark. You'll be super, super just empowered because you'll see the disciples who walked with this guy every day, they didn't get him either, right? It's okay. So the story goes that Peter says to Jesus in reply, I don't know what he was asked. I don't know what he's replying to. You kind of feel like maybe there's a conversation going on and they've like just, they're not part of it. And so he's kind of like, well, why don't, I don't? And he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. This is amazing. I can't believe I'm here. It's good that we're here. I tell you what, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, you've got to ask who's bunking with who at this point, because Peter, James, and John are going to need a spot to sleep. <laughs> right? So, like, who gets Elijah? Who's... <laughs> we're going to get to ask all our questions, right? He wants to stay there. And, it, and this text says that he hardly knew what to say, because they were so terrified. They were so filled with amazement. Now, fear and confusion were common responses to divine revelation in ancient Israel. Do you feel the theme there in your fill-ins, right? Like Mark is drawing on common themes and stories that he would have been handed, that he would have known. And whenever there was an encounter with the divine, fear and confusion were par for the course. When, when Yahweh gives the revelation on Mount Sinai of the covenant, the people are so scared they don't even approach the mountain. They won't approach. They're just like, Moses, you go ahead. Get on up there, Moses. Get. We're fine. We'll stay down here. Right? Uh, we see in the call of Isaiah, if you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah in his writing, there's this, there's this scene that he has a vision and he's taken into this temple and he freaks out. And he says, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I'm a person of unclean lips. And he has this encounter with God. Moses is confused and scared and says like, God, you can't choose me. I'm not the person to go. I don't talk real good. So I can't do this. What are you doing here? Joshua is scared out of his mind when Moses disappears from the scene, and he's supposed to take over. He's so scared. In the first few chapters of Joshua, it's like 23 times it says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be... Right? It's just a common thing. But isn't it interesting that in the fear and in the confusion... Peter wants to stay. Like you would think if you're writing this story, it's like Peter's so confused. He's like, Jesus, we got to go. Time to go. Let us know when you're done. We're out of here. But he wants to stay in the moment because there's something about being in that presence that felt right and good. And as they're in that moment, as Peter's trying to build tents and keep everybody there, 
and he's scared to death, says that a cloud came and it cast a shadow over them. And from that cloud came a voice that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, a couple of things are happening right here. Remember, we're right smack dab, basically, in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And this is the first time that we have this divine voice saying out loud where other people can hear this phrase, Son of God. And it's in a cloud of smoke. Why is that? Because a cloud and smoke were common symbols of God's presence in ancient Israelite religion. How many times can I say ancient Israelite religion today? Keep track. It's a drinking game, okay? It's a drinking game for some of you, all right? You got got to take a communion shot every time I say ancient Israelite religion today. That one I came up with right on the spot. I mean, that was just, that was just the freedom of the spirit. Thank you. I want to thank you. I'll be here all night, all night. So will you, because we're not even a third of the way through this talk. So, so listen, when the temple was finished, the story of Solomon's temple, the story says that a cloud of the glory of God filled the temple. We know that from the story of the, the ancient Israelites is they, they left Egypt and they traveled and they wandered through a very small wilderness for 40 days, or 40 years, excuse me, that there was a cloud that guided them, the story says. So this cloud and this smoke is this, this is the divine. And so in the gospel of Mark, in his story, right here in this moment, the divine revelation is that Jesus is the son of God, but nobody seems to get it. We can look in the Gospel of Mark prior to this, and there's moments where it says it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes it pretty clear what he's trying to do with his story. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we have the baptism of Jesus, and at the baptism of Jesus, only Jesus hears a voice, and this voice says, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. And then over the next seven chapters, there's these experiences. Whenever Jesus would, would cast out an unclean spirit, they would fall down before Jesus and they would shout out, you're the son of God. And that's what would happen. And then you have like at the end of the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, he's standing before the Jewish authorities and he's on trial. And what do they ask him? They say, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answers in that moment in the gospel of Mark, I am. And when they hear this, that is what pushes them over the edge. They, they rip their clothes in the gospel of Mark and they call for his death. You see, son of God was a powerful phrase. Messiah was a powerful phrase. But in this moment, right in the middle of the gospel of Mark, as Mark is trying to help people understand who Jesus is, the revelation in this beautiful story is this is my beloved son. This is him. Listen. Now, son of God in ancient Israelite religion. There you go. There's one for you. I think there's one more coming, right? That phrase, that phrase referred to divinely exalted humans that represented God's will. This is within the religious tradition of Israel. Son of God was not a new phrase. So we have, like you can read in, in some of our scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 82 is a psalm about unjust judges and rulers in the nation. And in this psalm, God refers to them as sons of God, children of God. This is what it says. God says, I declare, gods though you be, offspring of the most high, all of you. Right? So in this moment, the leadership that are there to represent God, they're called offspring of God, sons of God, and they're acting in unjust ways. And God's getting ready in this psalm to right that wrong. Son of God is also referred to, uh, is used to refer to kings of Israel, specifically the Davidic monarchy. So David and Solomon and their sons, they're called sons of God. 
In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, Israel, the whole nation, is called son of God because the whole nation was meant to represent the will of God. That's what they, they saw themselves as representing the will of God on earth. So there's that significant meaning that would have been well known. That would not have been a crazy thing for someone in antiquity in Mark's day to hear if you were Jewish. Yeah, we get it. Okay, that's what this is. Son of God meant this is a, a human being that God has chosen to represent God's will on this earth. Now, the interesting thing is son of God had another meaning as well at the time, and it had a Roman meaning. And son of God in Rome referred to the divine nature of the emperors. Okay, now I could spend the next four hours of this talk on just enthralling, invigorating, wonderful history on the emperor cult of Rome that is so important. But I'm not gonna do that because I would be the only person interested in it, okay? So all I wanna say is this. About 120 years before Mark, this guy named Julius Caesar is assassinated. How many of y'all ever heard of Julius Caesar, right? So Julius Caesar is assassinated. Et tu, Brute, right? Thank you, Shakespeare. Bill got it right, okay? Now, all of a sudden, what happens is there's a vacuum power in Rome. Julius Caesar was not considered an emperor. He was considered a dictator, which was a totally different kind of title, which was only supposed to happen for one year, by the way. So here's the deal. So Julius Caesar is assassinated. He has a nephew that he has adopted, a guy named Octavius, or Gaius Octavius. And this son, the, in the vacuum power, all the wealth, all the power kind of goes to him. And Octavius avenges the murder, the assassination of Julius Caesar, and he kind of steps in, and he becomes known as Caesar Augustus. Now, you might know that name because under the reign of Caesar Augustus, we hear that that's when Jesus was born, okay? But what Caesar Augustus does is he elevates Julius Caesar to a deity, and he says, Julius Caesar is divine. There was a comet that appeared over the Roman games that one year, and he said, look, that's the spirit of, of Julius Caesar. And the beauty of that move politically was now Caesar Augustus is what? Son of God. And, and that begins the imperial religion. And over the next 120 years, that just continues to grow. And emperors are called sons of God. Coins are minted that have Caesar Augustus's face on it, and it says Filius Divi in Latin, and it's saying this is the son of God or the son of the divine Julius. Now, over that time period, this emperor cult, right, this imperial religion just continues to grow and grow and grow. It goes beyond Caesar Augustus, right? Now, Augustus, by the way, is not his last name. It's a word that means one who is filled with glory, who is divinely inspired, almost one who should be worshipped. It's, it's like a title. So you have Caesar Augustus. Caesar was the family name that he took. Augustus, like Jesus Christ, okay? That's why we see a lot of that, like this a title. And what happens is the emperors, as they kind of just take over and there's power, there becomes this like group of emperors that reign during the time period where most of our gospels are written, Right? And so when most of our Gospels are written, there's this group of, of emperors, and this becomes the height of emperor worship. Temples are being built to emperors around the empire. You would, like governors would, call, would, would basically write and say, hey, we want to set up a temple to the emperor or to Julius Caesar or to Caesar Augustus, and, and that way we would gain favor with Rome, and they would get that building project approved, right? So by the time the year 70 comes where Mark is being written, and if Mark is, is in fact being written in Rome, it's almost the height of this. 
the Senate is deifying, you know, uh, these emperors left and right. And so, in, in fact, the, the, the emperor who would destroy the temple, who would become the emperor, the one who destroyed the temple, the general, his name was Titus, he, he actually would have been deified. And so all of this is taking place. And, and it's at the height of it. And so when Mark says, son of God, and he's writing to a group of people in Rome who understand all of this, a lot is being said right there, right? Mark is saying, listen, this Jesus, who is now filled with all of this grandeur, right? Just as big as Moses, just as big as Elijah, all these things. This is the son of God. This represents God on earth, this Jesus but it's going to come about in a very different way. So Mark, like in this moment, he uses this story to say, Jesus is bigger than any idea of Messiah that the Jewish people have, is bigger than any idea of a human being who's semi-divine the way the emperors were thought of being. And his story is about that, the significance of Jesus in both of those worlds. And so it, that's what Mark is doing. So in this moment, they hear it and they would hear all of these things. They would read into it. And the text goes on. After this is said, after this moment, I mean, that's the big moment. This is my son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It says this. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone, but Jesus was alone with him. Like, that's it. Like, get it. Boom. There it is. Nothing else needs to be said. And what do they do? They come down the mountain. It says, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus told them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you've seen, except when the Son of Man has risen from the dead. <laughs> and then it says, they actually didn't tell anybody. They kept the matter to themselves, and they questioned what rising from the dead meant. So they're coming down the mountain, and they're confused. They don't get it. Mark wants you to understand, even though they had this amazing experience, you're going to get another 15 chapters where nobody gets it. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Like, if we're honest, we're like, that's dumb. Like, if that happened to me, if I'm standing there and Jesus says, like, I'm telling everybody, I don't care what Jesus tells me. In fact, we have other gospels where he tells people, don't tell anybody, and they go tell everybody, right? But they don't tell anybody. And here's why, because for Mark in his story, the journey down the mountain Right? The journey down the mountain is a bigger metaphor. It's, it's the journey of belief and unbelief. It's the journey of contradictions in faith. It's the journey that leads to crucifixion. Because right after this, we have another story of the healing of a boy who is said to have a demon. It's probably epilepsy. So right after this, in Mark chapter 9, right after this story, we go to another healing. And in this story, like the, the parents, they come and say, can you please, if you can help, help. And Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can help? And this is what the boy's father cries out in Mark 9. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Pivotal, pivotal, beautiful, incredibly brilliant verse in the Gospel of Mark because that's what it's all about. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's from the beginning to the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's a space of confusion. That even with the mountaintop transfiguration experience, it's always about contradiction. There's always belief and unbelief. And then this story is immediately followed by a second prediction of the passion and suffering of Jesus. Mark is no like, literary sloth. He's, he's crafting a beautiful piece of literature here. And so all of this is encapsulated by the Son of Man has to suffer and die, and it finishes with the Son of Man has to suffer and die. Why? 
Because the idea of a suffering Messiah or a defeated Son of God was next to impossible for anybody to imagine and understand. Nobody would have ever thought it. And, and so in the Gospel of Mark, nobody gets it that should get it. Ma Mary, Jesus' mother, doesn't get it. Some of you are like, what? That's impossible. The angel came and told Mary. Well, not in the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't know anything about that stuff. Mark has no birth narrative whatsoever. Mary doesn't get it. Ma Mary thinks he's crazy. The bro his brothers think he's nuts at one point in the Gospel. They're like trying to call him back in. And Jesus is like, no, these are my mothers and brothers. This is my mother and these are my brothers and sisters. They don't get it. The disciples who are with him all the time, they don't get it. And so for Mark, here's what we don't want to miss. Two things. In the Gospel of Mark, the transfiguration, this beautiful story that we have, revealed to the readers the position of Jesus despite the expectations of the people. What Mark desperately wants to say is whether people get it or not, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And it's not like anything anybody could ever imagine. See, Romans expected a certain person to act like the Son of God, and that was the emperor through violence. The Jews expected the Messiah to be like David. But in this narrative, the transfiguration reveals the mystery of the empty tomb, the mystery of a Savior who, who couldn't, in that moment, bring inner peace to his disciples, who couldn't save himself, yet would be the Savior of the world and bring peace on earth. The truth is, Mark is a beautiful piece of Christian propaganda in the capital of Rome, saying, we want to have nothing to do with the way of this kingdom. We want to have nothing to do with the way of this world, because this Jesus is more superior than the one that you're building these temples for, and is more superior and fulfills the one of the temple that you destroyed, that you think that now your gods are more powerful because you destroyed them. No, no, no. Our Jesus is truly the Messiah and truly the Son of God. And he's greater than the greatest figures that Mark's community could have ever fathomed. The true Son of God. It's not Moses, it's not Elijah, it's not the emperor. This is my beloved Son. This is who I've chosen to represent my values. Love and mercy and forgiveness and nonviolence and distributive justice. Not religion and not Roman violence. So Jesus, from that moment forward, would journey to another mountain. He would journey to another hill in the Gospel of Mark, where once again, he'd be called the Son of God. But he wouldn't be called this by God. He wouldn't be called this by the disciples, and he wouldn't be called this by anyone in his family. In Mark chapter 15, it says that they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. If you Google it, you'll see that this is a, a, a kind of a hill that exists outside of Jerusalem, and it looks like a skull is carved into it. And they, get, they take him out there, and they crucify him there, and they give him wine, and they drugged it with myrrh, but he wouldn't take it. And there they crucified him, and they divided his garments, and they cast lots for them to see what each should get. And it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, Mark says, and the inscription above him, the charge was what? King of the Jews. He was an enemy of the state. And it says that he was crucified amongst two other enemies of the state, two other revolutionaries, one on his right and one on his left. And here's the beauty. In the Gospel of Mark, the only person to get who this one being crucified really was, 
at the end, after seeing it all, after seeing the way Jesus died, the only one who got it was the centurion. And the centurion stands there and he faces him and he saw him breathe his last breath, the text says. And Mark has the centurion say, truly, this man was the son of God. A Roman centurion who probably worshipped who, I mean, the character would have worshipped in all the, all the temples, the imperial, I mean, you're, this, this Roman centurion's not going around going, yeah, no, I don't think so much about this Caesar stuff. No, 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 that's it. And so what's powerful is Golgotha becomes the Mount of Transfiguration for the Roman centurion. And what Mark is saying to us, the, the, the Golgotha, the cross, this is the, the place of transfiguration for all of Rome. This is where it's all going to happen. This skull-shaped mountain, this place of death, this place of, of surrender, this place of humiliation. No, this, this is where Jesus is transfigured into something more. This is where. And so when the centurion sees him breathe his last breath, when he sees how he dies with the measure of conviction, not spitting and spewing, not acting in any way violent, but just simply taking, when he sees that, Jesus becomes more than Jesus becomes more than a revolutionary, more than an enemy of the state in the story of Mark. He becomes more than a prophet, more than a, a, a good rabbi or a good teacher. He becomes more than. And I think that Jesus becomes more than for us when we experience him as the one who suffered, as the one who died and the one who was raised to life, even if we're like the disciples and we don't know what it means to be raised to life. I love that they didn't understand what Jesus meant. The gospel itself ends in chaos. The original ending of Mark, the women go to the tomb. They're actually told by this angel who's there, go and tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And the story ends like this. But they were so scared and they didn't tell anybody. That's the original ending of Mark. That's how it ends. Like they're actually supposed to go tell people and they don't <laughs> because they're scared but yet the message persists. And so in your life and my life, in our everyday normal lives, in this story that can seem so fanciful, and so what does it mean? What's the metaphor? What is Mark trying to tell us? Well, here's the thing I want to encourage you, is to embrace your own Mount of Transfiguration stories. Embrace your own moments where Jesus can become more than, even if you don't understand it, even if I don't get it. We need these spiritual experiences that give us a knowing that is beyond us, that give us a sense of, of joy and love and strength and encouragement. It's like Shiloh's story. Like Shiloh's story gives her an inner strength about God at work that carries her in other moments, like these mystical experiences. We need that inner authority because we're never going to get it. We're never going to understand it, but we hold on to something that says there is this there is this reality that I can't grasp. I don't understand what it means. I come down from the mountain a little confused, but there is a way of knowing that goes beyond, that goes beyond the, the readings, that goes beyond the, the scientific discovery. But you can't stay on the mountain. We want to, but we can't. And so not only do we have to embrace the mountaintop, the transfigurations, but we also have to embrace the journey down. We have to embrace that journey down the mountain and into the valleys of life. It's my opinion that too much spirituality these days within our Christian tradition is really just towards the small self. 
It's just if I can come and if the music's right and if the sermon's right and if I can just feel it and then I can go and, and get through the week and I can come and then I can just wait until God comes and cleans everything up and I can just have these spiritual experiences. But healthy spirituality, like this moment, should really prepare us for the valleys so the mountain can protect us. For those moments in life that are just life. And so the journey down the mountain and the, the journey in the valleys and the journey that leads us to the cross, you know, at Crossroads we call this journey the way of peace. We talked about this way of peace, this rule of life earlier this year. We talked about like seven commitments, daily choosing love, forgiveness, and inclusion, listening to wisdom, practicing mindfulness, gathering together like this, creating hope, meaning giving ourselves away unselfishly, humbly going, crossing boundaries and borders to listen deeply, to love mercy. And we talked about intentionally resting. This way of peace is the journey down the mountain. And I want to encourage you to go on that journey. This summer, we're going to launch in a couple of weeks a summer journey called the way of peace, where we're going to re-examine these seven commitments. And we're going to do it all. None of it's going to happen in here. If you download the app, you'll just, you can participate in it. There'll be three kind of readings every week. You can read through those and there'll be some, like a prayer you can pray and maybe a spiritual practice. We're going to have a conversation group on Thursday night for people that want to explore these a little bit. But this summer can be a space of, okay, I, gotta, I want to journey down the mountain. I've had, like Jesus has been transfigured. Jesus is more than for me. And now I want to live in that path. And so I just want to encourage you to consider maybe participating in that at some level. And in our lives, if we'll do this, if we'll like walk that way of peace, if we'll embrace the transfiguration moments that change Jesus, that give us an idea, that reaffirm that Jesus is more than, and I might not be able to have all the words around it, but Jesus is more than. When that happens, when Jesus is transfigured in our lives, we are transformed into people of peace. And I don't know any other way for spirituality to move away from being this idea of just spiritual pleasure seeking to actually experience a transfigured Jesus at the cross and then choose to follow that way. And when the world is filled with people of peace, eventually heaven will come down to earth and there will be peace on earth. So as we wrap up today, what is it that God's inviting you into? So if we're going to we're going to have a few moments here before we head out, and the band's going to replay a song we did earlier. And I want to encourage you during this time to just consider having a mountaintop moment. We're going to receive the donations, and we'll receive the Connect cards after this, so don't frantically write your big checks. There'll be time, right? Don't frantically fill out that Connect card. You'll, I'll give you a minute. But in these next moments, just consider what's God inviting you to. Maybe it's to download that Crossroads app and participate in the summer journey. That's what you do. You download the app. It gets pushed out to you. That summer journey, the way of peace. There's a checkbox on the Connect card. If you're interested in a conversation group, if we have enough people interested, uh, we'll go. My, my fragile ego says two people. If two people want to come, if one wants to come, let's, who am I kidding? I'll do it, right? So if there's some folks that want to participate, I know it's summer and another thing in the evening, people might not, but if a few of us want to gather and just have a conversation about these, we'll do that here on Thursday nights. I want to invite you this week to read the Gospel of Mark. It's about 15 chapters. 
And, and when you read the Gospel of Mark, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say, wait, Ryan said it ended this way and it ended a different way, but there's a second ending to Mark that, that your, your Bible should tell you that this is not the authentic ending of Mark. But if it doesn't, just trust me. Our earliest, best manuscripts, Mark, ends in a weird space and the early, early people were like, this does, this, we can't have this, and so they added, right? But maybe read the Gospel of Mark, thinking about this phrase, Son of God, thinking about the transfiguration as the central kind of point, this confession of Peter right around it. Just see what happens. So as this song says, I love it, it says, I could just sit. I could just sit and wait for all your goodness. And I could just hope to feel your presence. And I could just stay. I could just stay right here where I am and hope to feel you and hope to feel something again. It's like Peter. Let's build tents. Let's just hang out here on the mountaintop. Right? I can just imagine Peter saying, I could just hold on. I could hold on to who I am in this moment and never let you change me. But then the song says, but you, you've called me. You've called me to something higher than the top of this mountain. You call me something to deeper that's deeper than the valley that I'm getting ready to walk in, and I'll go where you lead me. So let's take a few moments and just sit, be, have your moment. We'll do a modified altar call. We won't make you come forward or anything like that. But just make your space a space of a little mount of transfiguration where God can be so good and so big regardless of what we're going through. And then I'll come and have our blessing and we'll get the connect cards and donations. Let's sing this song together.